0: Today's gospel reminds me of MRIs, you know, magnetic uh, resonance imaging. Here's why I've experienced it a number of times. I imagine a number of you have as well, who've gone through an MRI procedure. And what actually happens if you haven't gone through the procedure is as a patient, they put you in this very narrow tube and they turn on this incredibly powerful magnet that allows the physicians to actually see inside your body. It allows you to avoid what used to be in, before MRIs a lot of exploratory surgery. There's one serious risk, however. It's a magnet, and a magnet attracts iron, you know, any ferrous metal. So the force of that magnet is so strong that loose ferrous metal in the room could become like a bullet. And if you, if you have a piece of ferrous metal embedded in your body, let's say shrapnel or something, it could actually rip it out. So it's a pretty serious thing. So because of this risk, Patients are painstakingly reminded, when you're about to have an MRI, no matter how many times you've gone through them, they go through the same drill, is you have to leave everything behind before you go in the room. Nothing come in, nothing metal can come in that room. And then you're grilled about your medical history and your personal history. Is there anything in your background that might indicate that you could have metal lodged in your body, like if you worked in a factory that you could have metal filings or something in your body? You can only shudder, think about it, what would happen if someone with a piece of metal lodged in your heart went into an MRI. So from this perspective, today's gospel reminds me of an MRI because Jesus is basically solemnly warning us that unforgiveness is like a fragment of metal that threatens to rip through our heart and destroy our spiritual lives and our relationships. And the message couldn't be clearer. Like when you go to an MRI, It all has to go, every bit of it. There can be none of it left. It all has to go. That's the message. The problem, of course, is how do you diagnose and remove the danger? How do you experience, how do you truly forgive? How can you do that? So I suggest five questions for us today. First of all, what is forgiveness? It's not as obvious sometimes as it seems, especially for Christians. Second, why is forgiveness so important for us? Why is it such a big deal for us? And why is it so important to God? God puts a lot of stock in this. Why? Fourth question why is forgiveness so important to our witness as Christians? And finally, okay, I buy in. How do I do it? How do I forgive? It's not easy. How do I forgive? So let's look at our first question what is forgiveness? You know, there are many false views out there. We all run into them every day. Watch TV or something about, about forgiveness. Like it's an excusing injustice. I love this. The passive voice. Mistakes were made. You know, that kind of thing. Or it's all a big misunderstanding. I'm sorry you took that wrong. <laughs> uh, you know, it's all denying. Like forgiveness is somehow denying that something bad happened. No, it isn't. Forgiveness isn't about lying. Matter of fact, we have three great examples of the Bible, of forgiveness to some of the best in the whole Bible, that in no way say that it's okay. Let's go in the Old Testament, the story of Joseph. You might recall in the story of Joseph, what happens is his brothers do something terribly evil. They're very jealous of him. He's, his father shamelessly spoils him, and the, the brothers hate it. You've all seen jo- or heard Joseph's amazing technicolor dream coat. You know the story. Okay, if you haven't read the book. Okay. And so finally, they basically, they actually have to have an argument. Do we kill him or do we just sell him into slavery? I mean, these are his brothers. Okay. Now, what they did was wrong, big time. Even later on in a bad moment, when they're talking among themselves, they say, in truth, this is a quote, we're guilty concerning our brother. We saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we wouldn't listen. That's their description. What they did was wrong. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a misunderstanding. It was wrong. And even Joseph, as he forgives them, I think it's one of the ways they could really believe it was happening. He said, as for you, you meant it for evil. You meant evil against me. And then he goes on and forgives them. Uh, So Joseph is a model of forgiveness. He truly loves his brothers and forgives them, the unforgivable. But he doesn't say it was some giant mistake. It was wrong. What about Stephen, the first martyr, who famously, like Jesus being crucified, calls out for mercy on the people killing him, people stoning him to death, a particularly painful way to die? What does Stephen say as he he begs for, for, for forgiveness for them? Falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. He acknowledged it for what it was it was a sin, it wasn't a big mistake. And what about Jesus with a famous woman caught in adultery? We all know that passage, right, in John's Gospel, where they come and they try to trap him and say, well, you know, Moses said we're supposed to stone women like this, what do you say? And Jesus said, okay, just um, whoever's without sin can start. Throw the first stone. They all wander away, we know the story, and Jesus is left alone with her. When he says goodbye to her, what does he say? That they were all wrong? No. He says, from now on, sin no more. So in the story of Joseph, in the uh, story of Stephen, and Jesus, Jesus the woman, forgiveness in each case doesn't involve denying something wrong happened. It's not excusing the inexcusable. So if that's not what it is, what is forgiveness? What does it mean? And for Christians, it means something even more than it means for the world. In the world, it has a negative sense. I agree, I'm not going to seek to get back at the person who harmed me. That's what it means in the world. I'm not going to do something bad. I'm not going to seek to get even. OK, that's what it means in the world. Jesus takes it a step further than that. He says it's positive. Instead of not just not seeking to get even, get, you know, have it, uh, get revenge on them, he says, we actually seek their well-being. Here's Jesus. He says, you've heard that it was said you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So for forgiveness of for a Christian, it's not just simply that we put enmity aside. Is What happens is we, we don't lose empathy. We continue to have empathy. So that's what forgiveness is. It's a tough bill of goods. So it's not lying about sin, but it really means letting go and more than just letting go not simply forgoing retribution. It means truly concern for those who've harmed us. So that brings us to our second question. Why is forgiveness so important? Obviously, Jesus says it's extremely important. He says you can not appear before God with unforgiveness in your heart. I don't know if you realize over a thousand years when a priest would visit you on your deathbed, the classic question that was asked is, have you forgiven your enemies? He warned you, you cannot, you're about to appear before God, you cannot appear before God with unforgiveness. You cannot, like that MRI, you cannot do this. This is the time to let go. So, the first reason we are given today in our gospel reading, we can't ask God to use different standards for us and for others. We can't beg for mercy for ourselves and then demand strict justice of everyone else. This is why notice the master in the parable today, he agrees with the servants who are distressed at what happened. Look at what he says, the master summoned him and said to him, you wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servants as I had mercy on you? So put it this way, God gives every one of us what should be the world's easiest choice. The decision's entirely ours. Do we want mercy or strict justice? We can choose but the only thing is what we choose will work across the board. So we can choose. God says, choose mercy or strict judgment, but truly the answer is you want mercy. I think I used to be a CPA, and I've got to tell you, it's like tax elections. You know, here are your two tax choices, and you tell tell someone, really, this is the right answer. (laughs) This is the right answer. Okay. So from this perspective, we can actually be praying a curse on ourselves when we pray the Lord's Prayer. Because God answers prayer. What do we pray? Forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Jesus tells us today that prayer will be answered. our, Our sins will be forgiven exactly in the same way that we've forgiven others. Even more important for forgiveness, why it's important to us, is when Jesus is leaving us at the Last Supper, you know, preparing to go into the next stage. What does he tell them? What's the heart of his message to his apostles? He says, a new commandment I give to you. Love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. What does Paul say about Jesus' love? He says, here's what we know A love is. He says in Romans, it's while we were still sinners that Christ died for us. That's the love we're called to. That's the legacy of Jesus. That's the last thing he asked of us. A new commandment I give to you. So our third question, why is forgiveness so important to God? Why does God insist upon this? Well, let's go back to that story of the woman caught in adultery. Do you recall? Let's actually read the words, what it says. It says, Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? And she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. But from now on, sin no more. Notice the words. Jesus said, I don't condemn you. He didn't say she didn't sin. What's the difference? The word condemned has a technical meaning. We all know it. We might forget it. What's a condemned building? A condemned building is a building beyond repair. You just simply can't fix it. You have to tear it down. You have to have rebuild. Can't, it can't be fixed. It's beyond fixing. A condemned criminal, God forbid, it, there was a time when people with executions would say, well, they're beyond any hope of, of, of being saved, and that would be the justification for execution. They're condemned. There's nothing you can do with them. It's hopeless. It's giving up hope. Jesus was not willing to give up hope. That's what it came down to. Why is this important forgiveness? He wasn't giving up hope. And why? It's because of the inherent value of every human being. In Luke 15, there's a chapter on this. Luke 15 starts out, a very famous chapter, but sometimes we don't read the whole chapter and we miss the point. The chapter starts out, the Pharisees and their scribes are complaining that Jesus always is too kind. He's a softy on sin, is the view. That's the word out. He's a softy on sin. He just lets anything go. And so Jesus said, well, he, says, he, t- he tells him three parables. The first parable one is this. He said, what, what, what? is there anybody out there who had got a hundred sheep and lost one wouldn't go looking for it? Now, we get the story wrong. You understand that's not a cute story. Oh, isn't that sweet? Sheep cost a whole lot of money in the ancient world. Sheep, think of it this way. Imagine you go to Oakbrook and you say, where did I park my car? Oh, gee, I don't know. I'll have to buy another one. You can't, that's ridiculous. Who, if they misplace their car, isn't just going to spend a whole lot of time in finding it? It's too valuable. Who can afford to leave a car? He says, is there, so he says not, is there anybody here, any of you, who if you had 100 sheep, if you had one lost, wouldn't go looking for it? It's too valuable to just let go. He follows up with a story about a woman with 10 silver coins. And he says, if a woman has 10 coins and loses one, is there any one of you here, all of you women here, he said, with, with coins, anyone here would go looking for that coin? It's like our saying, if I left my wallet back at the restaurant, would I bother to go back and get it? Yeah, I think so, probably. Lucky hodge. So he said, okay, if we feel this way, the third parable, if we feel this way about, about sheep and about coins, what about people? And that's the parable of the prodigal son. Remember that older brother in his anger, oh, this son of yours. <laughs> and the father says, this brother of yours. So the first point, why is, uh, why is God so big on forgiveness, is because he sees that fundamental value, which we call the image of God, that's in every human being. He won't give up. Now, there's also another parable I love earlier in Matthew's gospel, in chapter 13. It's the parable of the weeds, sometimes called tares, okay? It was a special kind of weed that grows among weeds, and the tricky thing about this weed is that the weed looks almost like wheat. It's hard to tell the difference. You can if you're very careful, but it's hard to tell the difference until harvest time. You know, the initial stalk going up is hard to tell. So the story goes that uh, one day, some servants with a farmer come in and say, hey, one of your enemies has actually sowed uh, weed seed in your wheat. They said, can we go out and rip it out? He said, whoa. He said, no, no, you're going to pull out some of the wheat. So think of it this way. what we're basically saying one of the reasons you know, that God's patience is the fact, you know, he knows, he's not willing to have any of that wheat lost. Not one a bit of the wheat lost. Take an example. Imagine on Palm Sunday, two people on Palm Sunday, and which one of the we know for a fact that one of them is with the Lord for all eternity. Imagine that for a fact. We know this human being is with the Lord for all eternity. And the other one, everything points that that's not the case. So let's talk of two people. See which one is which one of them is a personal friend of Jesus, was actually selected after a night of prayer to be an apostle, and was so trusted he was made treasurer. Yeah, Judas. Okay. And the other was a career petty criminal. A career petty criminal. Spent his whole life doing this finally. is you know, three, Roman equivalent, three strikes you're out. He's finally, you know, eventually executed. Any of us on, on Palm Sunday, we would have said the wheat is Judas, right? And that weed is the thief on the cross. We have it exactly backwards. Uh, what, who would have ever figured out that Paul, Saul of Tarsus, would become Paul the apostle? Who ever would have figured out some of the best weed ever planted was present at, at Stephen's stoning to death, supporting the stoners? God sees wheat where we see weeds. That's why he has such patience and forgiveness. I think there's an example, I as a road warrior for many years, I've taken all sorts of plane trips. And several times this has happened during when I took, took plane trips, is we'd be sitting uh, right there at the gate, and we're not moving. And they'd explain, okay, let's say we're in New York, and we're trying to take a uh, cross country to San Francisco, and they said, okay, we have a plane from London coming with 20 people, and you know, they're, they're running late. We don't want them to miss the flight, or they, can't, you know, they, they need to get on this flight. So we're gonna hold the plane for them this explains God's otherwise inexplicable mercy and forbearance. He's not going to let anyone miss the flight. That's the story of God. No one misses. We'll hold the plane and wait. This is the story of the book of Revelation, when the martyrs under the altar are calling, you know, are calling for, we'll do something. And he said, well, we still don't have everybody. We're waiting. We're holding the plane. Okay. The fourth question, why is forgiveness so important to our Christian witness? Well, I've got to tell you, let's be honest, the world has a reason to be skeptical, right? On the marketplace of ideas and religions and things, why are we different? That's a reasonable thing. Peter said, be ready to give a reason for the hope that's in you. That's a reasonable question. Why should we believe you? Are you really different from anybody else? Fair enough. You know, it's easy to talk a game, a good game. Seeing is believing. So I want to use an image from Exodus to get to this. In Exodus, remember when Aaron and Moses go to Pharaoh, God gives them the ability to perform some specific miracles as a, re, as a sign to show them they're really coming from God. So you recall the first time they show up at the court, the, the uh, Pharaoh, the miracle you have is Aaron is told, cast down your rod, and what happens? It'll turn into a serpent. He does it, sure does, sure turns into a serpent, but guess what happens? I'll let me quote from Scripture. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same thing by their secret arts. You know, it looked the same, didn't it? Yeah. So you do, you do, the, you do the, uh, the, uh, the staff snake thing? We do that too. We can do it. Yeah. Next. Okay. So we have the first plague. The first plague we're turning, we're talking about turning water into blood. And again, what happens? Uh, Aaron does this. Moses and Aaron do this. And it says here, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So far, it's still even, two for two, okay. How about, uh, then we have the next plague, the swarm of frogs, and you've guessed it, haven't you? Who would know, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts. We're getting sort of in a pattern, but then suddenly something happens to the pattern, big time in the third plague, the fourth miracle. It says that uh, this time they actually, Aaron, Aaron brought forth gnats out of dust. And listen to this. Listen carefully. It says the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they couldn't. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. They're saying this is the real thing. Honestly, this isn't, it's not a trick. We know it's, it's the real thing. It's the finger of God. Well, guess what? When it comes to our witnesses, Christians, one thing that absolutely cannot be faked is forgiveness. Nothing impresses the world more than Christian forgiveness. It, there is no equivalent anywhere else, anywhere. It just strikes the world. Think of an example recently. Remember the Charleston shooting? We have almost a kabuki theater in modern America. So every time something horrible happens of going into outrage and things and just, you know, in Twitter mobs and the whole thing. I mean, these are horrible things, but we just sort of like getting wrapped up in like a Roman Colosseum about, oh, you know, we get very, very angry about these things. Understandably, the outrage, but the point is we sort of like the whole getting into this. What happened in Charleston was horrifying. You know, somebody comes into a Bible study, you know, in an African-American church and shoots nine people. Murders, there are nine counts of murder. Now, this should be the horrors and things, but what's the reaction of these people when the nation stopped? Suddenly, the kabuki drama changed profoundly. People have never seen anything like this. What was the reaction? Let me read from the Washington Post. Not exactly a Christian publication. Okay the relatives of those slain were able to speak directly to the accused gunman on Friday at his first court appearance. One by one, they offered him forgiveness and said they were praying for his soul, even as they described the pain of their losses. And I love particularly, this was from a mother, a woman who had lost her 70-year-old mother in the shooting. She said, I forgive you. You took something very precious from me. I'll never talk to her again. I'll never hold her again, but I forgive you. God, have mercy on your soul. The world, that nation held its breath. People realized they had seen something. It's the finger of God. It's the real thing. It's not church talk. It's the real thing. It's God. We've seen God. I have a personal favorite. Historically, there's a, uh, there was a, an Irish priest during the Second War named Hugh O'Flaherty, and he worked at the Vatican. It's a real-life story. It was turned into a book in the 50s. And it became one of my favorite movies. One of my top movies called *The Scarlet and the Black*, true story. And what this guy did, Hugh O'Flaherty, is he actually when they when Italy surrendered, the Nazis occupied Italy, including Rome. And he actually built a network that's protected over four thousand escaped prisoners and Jews and other people who are hiding out from the SS. An incredible network of people putting together. And uh, this, the the book and the movie are about wonderfully about. Um, how he did this. a sort of a cat-and-mouse game between this horrible person named Colonel Herbert Kepler, the head of the SS in, in, uh, in Rome, the head of the SS. Indeed, it was tragic. Several times, several of his friends were tortured for information and executed, of O'Flaherty's friends. So at the end of this, it's an interesting, all these things are great. At the end of the movie, they have an epilogue. You know, the titles are about to begin to run, and the first part of the epilogue is pretty, nice. It says after the liberation, Monsignor Hugh O'Flaherty was honored by Italy, Canada and Australia, given the U.S. Medal of Freedom and made a commander of the British Empire. Herbert Kepler was sentenced to life imprisonment for war crimes. Okay? Then the finger of God. In the long years that followed in his Italian prison, Kepler had only one visitor. Every month, year in and year out, O'Flaherty came to see him. In 1959, the former head of the dreaded Gestapo in Rome was baptized at the hand of the Irish priest. This is the finger of God. Doing something like this is amazing. It cannot be fake. It's like saying to Pharaoh, this is the real thing. The world stops. This is not, no powerful witness is powerful with the power of forgiveness. So this leads us to our fifth question, okay, how can we forgive? It's, it ain't easy. So we know the Bible tells us we have to forgive, and it seems sometimes just impossible to do this, so how can we remove this deadly spiritual shrapnel of unforgiveness from our hearts? How do we do that? Well, first of all, let's remember basic gospel truths, and the most basic gospel truth is this. God never commands without empowering, ever. Actually, it's sort of good news. When God asks us to do something, we can know for a fact that we'll be able to do it. (laughs) Sort of like good news, oh, I didn't know I was able to do that. If God commands, he never commands without empowering. This is why it says in Luke, Jesus says, Luke 18, 27, what's impossible with man is possible with God. <laughs> and we have a wonderful, the words of the Apostle Paul in first, Second Corinthians, he talks about something that God actually spoke to him, a word that God spoke to him in his conclusion for the rest of his life. He was complaining about a spiritual challenge he couldn't get over. And and God says to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And he says, therefore, I'll boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So accordingly, I think we should follow the example of the man who sought healing for his son, but he knew his faith wasn't good enough. You recall the story? Uh, He comes up to Jesus. He says, if you could do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Jesus said to him, if you can... All things are possible to one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. He knew he had belief, but he knew it wasn't good enough. So what happened? The child was healed. God God made up that faith. So why can't we have a similar prayer about our, and offer God the forgiveness we have, no matter how defective, and count on God to make up the difference? Lord, I forgive help my unforgiveness, and count on God to to do the work. It's called grace. God always does the work. God always does the heavy lifting. So in conclusion, let me say there's one more critical factor that I think may actually keep us from forgiving. And, you know, as as Jesus tells us to forgive in today's gospel, and that is the true forgiveness requires love. You can't forgive if you don't have love, And we can't experience love unless we actually have ourselves experienced forgiveness from God. Can't do it. Jesus tells us this. That's why I say you can't do it. Jesus says so. He says, who is forgiven little, loves little. So we need love to forgive. But if we haven't actually experienced God's forgiveness, we're not going to have the love that takes to forgive. So maybe we're trapped in a cycle of unforgiveness because we have never really accepted the fact that God forgives us. We say so, but we don't believe it we listen to the enemy who says, yeah, you can fool all these other people. I know how bad you are. I know what a hypocrite you are. Maybe the rest buy into this. I don't. You know, so well, you sort of feel, well, I guess God, I wish He did, but I don't really think He's forgiven me. Well, it's not true. So, I would, if that's your case, I think it's the case probably with a lot of us, if that's our case, to embrace God's promise of forgiveness today. In a few moments, for example, our bishop at the altar is going to pronounce the words of institution over the cup. And what does he say? Listen carefully. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many, for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we receive the cup of communion, our prayer should be, yes, Lord, I accept your forgiveness. That's humility to accept forgiveness. Yeah, I need it, but I believe you're bigger than my sins. I accept your forgiveness. Every time we place our hand in the, in the baptismal font, we remember the baptism. It's a reminder that in baptism we have an inexhaustible spring of forgiveness. It flows from our baptism. That's why we don't rebaptize. Once is enough. That's, it's a spring of water. You know, the rest of our lives, all the forgiveness we'll ever need is contained in that baptism. We can keep drawing on that spring. So if we feel unforgiven, the answer is turn to the facts of our baptism and Eucharist, is saying, no, accept God's forgiveness so we can forgive. We also, if we're having trouble, any of us here with the problem of dealing with unforgiveness, feeling we're unforgiven, so we can't forgive because of that, we have trained prayer ministers available to seek the Lord's face, you know, for this and any other reason, but it's a good time maybe to seek them out and really put this before the Lord. Say, Lord, I want to accept that forgiveness. Lord, uh, you know, I forgive, help my unforgiveness. So let's make our real prayer today that by God's grace, we may so truly forgive those who've wronged us from the depths of our heart, that we can pray with joy and confidence, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Amen.